Audi. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand. During the pandemic, Jamie Klingler underwent an incredible transformation, losing seven stone and going from heavy drinking party girl to sober. But it was the murder of Sarah Everard that led to her becoming the activist her mother always felt she should be. She grew up in Philadelphia. She's travelled the world working in media and events and was in the heart of New York City on 9-11. She swam and dived in the Maldives during lockdown, loves Vietnam, has followed in the footsteps of Steve Coogan in Italy and feels that fellow Americans need to travel more mindfully. Jamie Klingler is on the Big Travel Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I was listening to your TED Talk, which has had over 66,000 views at the time of talking. We're at 74,000. 74,000. My goodness, that's amazing. And it was about um, being the change yourself, wasn't it? It was about inspiring the change. And you have gone through a transformation. And, and you know, I, hate, I actually hate to focus on the physical, you know, in terms of we were talking about your dramatic weight loss. Um, but actually, it does really make a difference as to who you are and how you feel about yourself. And of course, health and everything. And, and really, the biggest change was I never spent any time alone before the pandemic. Like, I would have six back-to-backs to back-to-backs, I would, and then I would meet friends, and then I'd go to a restaurant opening. Like, I was never alone if I could help it. And I was always the one at the end being like, oh, let's do something else, let's not. And the fear of being by myself prevented me from a lot of things. And I didn't recognize that, and I didn't know that. But, like, my best friend Gina talks about, like, when I would invite her for lunch, she's like, oh, God, it's going to be an all-dayer, rather than being excited to come see me and hang out for a little while and then go home. And, and actually being forced to be alone and being forced to spend that time and get used to myself and being forced by myself to do it soberly um, was the biggest change. And and now I get a bit people overloaded at times and I want just some solitude and I want some time to process and write and think rather than the constant noise that was really hiding a lot of pain too. You know, I was, I was grieving my mom and, and 
I wasn't in a good place and coming out of all of this and really liking who I am when I wake up in the morning and finding myself singing and like things that never ever used to happen and and running which never ever used to happen and so all of these things that have now contributed to me being a much happier person you let's talk about your mum for a little bit because I I know you grew up in did you grow up in Philadelphia yes and your mum was quite an activist as well, wasn't she? She was, and I really rejected it. Like, I, I had no interest. I, I was like, oh, my God, another demonstration. Um, and part of her criticism of my lifestyle was that it didn't serve a purpose. Like, I was traveling and flitting all around the world, and I was doing all of these so-called glamorous things, but but it was all erasable. And she was really quite critical about it. And I was like, just because I don't make your choices. Um, but even at the very end of uh, her life, she was in a wheelchair at the teachers union protest. You know, like she spent her whole life living for causes and, and fighting the good fight. And I used to joke about it all the time that I was like the black sheep that never did any of it. Um, not realizing that my whole life would turn around and it would become my purpose. And, and actually that developing my voice in kind of everything I do um, for women's safety and for everything is is done on her shoulders and having had that role model grown up. But this, your activism started after she passed away. And me quitting drinking started after she passed away. And that's one of the things that I beat myself up about quite a bit is that she didn't get to see this. She, she died worried about me and I, that's a hard thing. Um, but she would be over the moon at what I've done and what I continue to do and and how I've used all the skills that I accumulated in my life to have a voice for women that might not have the voice themselves. How what was life growing uh, like growing up in Philadelphia? I was I was like the kid in the library all the time. Um I was like like the librarians gave me a birthday cake cuz that's how much I spent. <laughs> like I re- I'm still like a ravenous reader, but I read a lot. We were pretty poor and I went to city schools and I loved it and we were outside all day every day and nobody ever knew where we were. <laughs> but it was we were both really readers and we read a lot together. Um and the household was all about food. My mom was an incredible cook. Um but it was uh all cheese and butter and garlic. And and I never really learned much about how not to do that. And her issues with weight definitely uh, transitioned to my issues with weight. But um, she'd be really happy that I've, I've done the therapy, done the work, and come out the other side. So what brought you to the UK? You've been here in London for... 20 years this 20 month. 20 years. Yeah, like on the 28th. Um, I got transferred for a year, so I, and I was 22. So I joked that it was my study abroad that was paid. I, and um, I can't, like I lived on Parkway in Camden, and it, I can't believe it's been 20 years. It's nuts. So I thought I was going to be back. Like I, I, I moved from New York. I had been working on Law & Order, and then I worked for a photo agency who had transferred me here. So it was really just like I'd never visited. Just got on the plane. Um but again, that kind of adventurous spirit and that kind of like, if the opportunity arises, say yes and go for it, um, is kind of been my motto for life. Was it a culture shock coming here? Oh my God. I also came here in the midst of the Iraq war. And so the sentiment about Bush and stupid Americans and, and the sentiment about all of that, and it was a year after 9-11 and I had been in New York. So I was young, I was sensitive, I didn't know anyone, and like going from being the girl that organized all the parties to being like, can I come out with you because I don't know anyone in this country, was a real shift for me. Um, So the first couple of years, you end up with this expat crew, and then you realize you wouldn't have been friends with them in America, 
and wonder why you are. So I very much, like my friendship circle now, I think has one or two Americans, but like it's very much British. Like my ex-boyfriend Johnny was was born and read, raised in London, which doesn't really happen. So like everyone I'm friends with is basically British. Well, what were, what were you doing in New York? And you were there for 9-11. Yeah, I worked for Law & Order. Um, special in a TV show? Yeah. Uh, As opposed to just, you know, the law. Uh, no, I, Law and Vo- Order and the first series of Special Victims Unit. Things come around. Um, and then I was at Corbis, which was a photo agency working with celebrity portraiture. So when I came here, I was selling, like, portraits of Nicole Kidman to GQ and things like that. Um, so where were you on 9-11? Uh, at 20th and Broadway. And how, how did that unfold for you? I had a boss that was in town early, so I was in the office earlier than I usually was. I'd gone to a pharmacy as I came out of the subway. Um, I was on Fifth Avenue, and like cars were open, doors were open, radios were on, and and they were saying that a Cessna had hit the World Trade Center, and other people were saying it was a movie. And then as we stood there, the second plane hit. And when you watch it on TV, you see it come around. You see, but like at that point, nobody had any idea. We went into our offices. Our office kind of put us in lockdown. Somehow ordered pizzas, which is just weird that the pizza delivery guy still had to come out. Um, but they didn't know what was the next target. At one point, I went to the bathroom and came out, and somebody said Philly had been hit, but it was Schwanksville. And, but it was the chaos. Um, and then afterwards, I lived at 63rd and West End. So um, our firehouse, like the only thing I knew how to do was cook. So we made lasagnas, and I brought them to the firehouse. And this lady at the firehouse was like, there's nowhere to, no one to eat them. Like... Our firehouse lost 24 guys. So they were first responders. And and the city and all of it. Like, we went to see Ghost World, I think it was called, in the movies. Because Giuliani was like, get outside. You have to see other people alive. And, like, part of the theater would start crying. Then everyone would cry. And then it would stop. And then someone would cry. And then everybody would cry. And it was, like, it, it took me, I think, six days to get a train back home. Um, but... It's it's such a weird time, and and then the aftermath, and people having pictures up, and 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 seeing people's pictures, and and I haven't even thought of that until right now about how much we saw Sarah Everard's picture everywhere, and that making posters of your cats and dogs is upsetting. Making posters of people you love is brutal, and like I think part of my impotent grief around Sarah was that. I was here, I was locked down, I ran an events company, so I wasn't working, and I just, I, I got a bit obsessed and was watching it all the time, and, and just hoping without hope that there was a sliver of possibility, and and the idea of them printing those pictures and putting them everywhere, and just that horror, you know, and and then finding out it was, it was somebody that was meant to protect and serve us, and the absolute fury, Um so in terms of like using applicable skills, I literally just tweeted I was going to do a vigil. So in, in no way did I have any way of anticipating what the next year would hold. It was the, the worst possible outcome, not just because, of course, you know, what happened to her, but also who did it. Absolutely. I mean, in a way, it, you know, it's, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. I don't know. I mean, because the worst thing, the very, very worst thing possible imagined. And I m- remember reading her mum saying that she just keeps on saying yeah just like keeps on say, waking up I can't even say it actually without crying but um, keeps on waking up saying just run you know it, like 
So, I mean, let's let's get on to the the, act, the activism you've been doing uh, in relation to that. You know, how how has that developed? You, you tweeted and then you organised the, the vigil. Well, so I was put in touch with local women who were also going to do a vigil. We joined forces. One of them had been at a book club I had organised back in the day and was like, oh, she's not a crazy. She's like normal. And she knows women's mags. So we then divvied out jobs. So I had to get like electric tea lights because you weren't allowed fire on Clapham Common. Um, I was getting the PA system. And so the next morning we were all systems go. Um, there were two counselors, Jessley and Anna Burley. So they had contacted the council and they contacted the local police who were like, we will find a way to police this. Um, obviously, under COVID restrictions, it's a, you can't, but we will find a way to police this. So they were supportive. And then from on high on Thursday, the word came down that it was illegal. And so very, very quickly, the landscape all changed. Now, had the police just had anyone stepped in and just been a grown up and said, OK, go ahead. We would have had a moment of silence on Saturday and we would have gone back to our lives on Sunday. Every single step of the next year has been because of antagonistic like actions by the Met Police. So that Thursday, and like this isn't my world, this isn't my life at all. That Thursday, we found Adam Wagner on Twitter, who is a human rights barrister, who assembled a team. That Thursday night, we raised 37,000 pounds to take the Met to high court on Friday. Friday at three o'clock in the afternoon, we ended up in high court. Like, I'm a girl from Philly. I have, like, I got in trouble for taking a picture of the teams in court. Um, like, no idea, never in my wildest dreams that I, that I would be suing the Met. And then... They're talking about all this binder stuff. I'm all confused because we don't have any we don't have any of the paperwork in front of us. But the judge is like, you never should have been here. It's your fault, like to the Met, that we were even brought to court. Um, and then the Met asked us to pay their cost. And the judge was like, absolutely not. And we were all like, what? <laughs> expletive, expletive, expletive. Um, and the judge said, you have to go away. They have to give you the parameters. You have to follow them. And as we negotiated, they said in press release that it was illegal. Like the condescension and their treatment. And again, this is my... With my level of privilege of having worked at Stylist Magazine for 10 years, my only dealing with police has always been more than cordial. You know, if your phone gets nicked. It's, and, like, I worked in Holborn. We worked next to the police station. We saw the cops all the time. Um, and so the idea that they would treat us like this was just so outrageous. And that Thursday night, like, Harriet Harman wrote a public letter to Cressida Dick saying, not only did we have reasonable excuse, she would be attending. At that point, they could have stopped it. They just dug their heels in, and our lawyers have talked about that it, it's one of the more interesting cases because usually something happens, and then you bring in counsel, and then counsel tries to analyze everything that's happened to make it into a case. But our, our barristers were with us from not. They were with us for every meeting. They were with us for every negotiation. They were witness and with us and advising us through this entire case, which is crazy. But um, if they wouldn't let the four of us protest a woman killed by police officer who are they going to let they are not going to let other people and that's that's where it became bigger than us and that's where it became a human rights issue rather than just a women's safety issue or just about us um but it's unbelievably painful and stressful to sue the police for 15 months <laughs> like raising the money thinking about it all the time not knowing what they're going to say in the press not knowing when they're going to come back not like just your life doesn't stop because you're just you're you like it's so all encompassing and they were so condescending like Cressida Dick called us naive young women that meant well in the home affairs committee well you know what the stupidest thing you did was try to shut up this young naive young woman I'm not even young but like that's it's the level of patronizing oh, no. there is just infuriating but also and misogyny oh 
Absolutely. And everything they had done, like Connors, who's now in charge of Partygate, was the one that was the nastiest to us, to the point that Jess asked that she was sanctioned to Cressida Dick directly. The Monday after the vigil, we had 20 minutes with Cressida Dick. She came in and started a soliloquy as, as a woman. I don't care that she's a woman. And then I said, point blank, if you know what you knew now, what would you do differently? And her answer was absolutely nothing. There's like, I wish I had her like <laughs> Teflon skin. We did cancel because of liability and them threatening us with 10,000 pounds of fines each. And at that point, we knew it was going to go ahead and decided that raising the money and fighting them in court was more important. But to sit there, I was on BBC, on B-roll, watching them storm the bandstand and crumple flowers that women had left for Sarah and watch them manhandle women at a vigil about police killing a young woman. Like, I've never seen any, like, <laughs> never seen anything like it. And that we weren't there. Like, we told women to go, even though we did cancel. Felt a great deal of responsibility, you know, and, and it still weighs heavy. It's particularly poignant, think, talking about all of this, when we know what was happening in Downing Street oh my God. at the time. Like, they were bouncers. They held the door open for it. They witnessed it. And, like, Good Law Project had to threaten to sue for them to investigate number 10. And at the same time, they were doing this to us. At the same time, they've just kept doing this. The, the day that they found out that they lost the high court judgment against us, they have vindictively prosecuted women that went to the vigil. Like, I wrote a tweet saying it was a vendetta, and it was substantiated a week later, like in a million years. Like, I was being mouthy. I didn't actually think that we would have people, like, in documentation that that's what they did. Like, the high court said they did not consider our human rights. Like, we spent 15 months. They, they tried to appeal it twice. And, like, it's like, when do you stop spending our money? When do you have any accountability for your actions? And there's just none. There's, ap- there's not been an apology. There's not been any acknowledgement of what they have done to us or the money they've spent. And if you think back to that time... You know what they were going on. They were the parties in in Downing Street that have emerged. But the whole reason that Sarah was able to be apprehended by a policeman for walking at night is that we had the laws about doing that and to go in people's houses. And she'd in she'd her been mind, in someone's house. She'd, she'd been doing something wrong. And I say that inverted commas. And she would never have had a police officer ever come up to her in the rest of her life. And the fear. And you know, I can't really talk about what that car ride like and and that's the thing is it could have been any one of us and and I think that we had all been through our lives and had so many situations where we'd done so many worse things and been in such more precarious situations and 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 got away with our lives and that's that's where it comes down to is that finding out the details and like were horrific and I don't know her I don't love her she wasn't mine let alone if she was mine, you know, and, and that's kind of thing. Um, Janome from sister space talked about why did it take a young white woman dying for the blinders to come off about police brutality and the way that BAME communities are policed and, and it did. And like, I was willfully ignorant and my life was a lot calmer and I was a lot, I just went about my business with my head in the clouds. I, I joke with my best friend that I used to be like 10% feminist and 90% everything else, and now it's inverted. And like last night about the Rwanda flights and and who I follow now and who I interact with now, and the world's partially my responsibility, you know? Like, and 
And the work is painful and it comes with a lot of people telling you their sexual assault stories and what has happened to them and that they're never going to come on your podcast and talk about uh, women's safety. But it does feel like a day of reckoning is coming. And But politicians all talk about the fact that um, it was a it was some moment that was going to be a watershed moment and nothing changed. They didn't, they didn't make us any safer. They didn't make misogyny a crime. They didn't do anything they promised. And that's where, come on. And, and they're fighting us tooth and nail. And all we want to do is walk around, get back from work, go on dates and not get killed, not get raped. Even the the most sensitive of my friends, you know, who are feminists and you think they're aware. I remember at the time writing something on Facebook about how things that I actually didn't even think of before because we all automatically tell each other, say, oh, let me know when you're home. Um, Oh, shall I walk you back? Get a taxi, you know, text, ring three times as it used to be just to let me know. Walking down the road with your keys in your hand. When I walk home, I, I make sure I'm not too far from the... I'm not too close to the cars, but I'm not too close to the house gates. You know, all those things that you think when you're walking But one of my friends was like, you don't really talk about it. If all this was happening... You just do it. It's like, because I would would be the most boring person on the earth, because it would be all I talk about. Because it's what we do. So how has your your life changed? Oh, my God, how hasn't it? (laughs) Um, Through the pandemic, I quit drinking in April of 2020, took up running. Um, I then lost seven stone broke up with my partner of eight years, um, went to the Maldives for six weeks on a solo honeymoon, uh, came back and three weeks later ended up in the eye of the storm and founded Reclaim These Streets. And it's a very personal question, but how do you, you know, you're you know, focusing on the activism now. How are, you, how are you surviving? You no longer have a job. You know, I know as a freelance journalist that it's not easy. So I do write a lot, um, but I've also kind of figured it was a year of service. And because I had an events company, it, this, is, this is more important. Um, but yeah, my savings are pretty much gone. And, and now I'm, I've reached out to a bunch of people and I'm trying to figure out how to monetize it or join a firm for purpose um, who wants to hire me because of my activism, not in spite of it. Uh, I just want to move to the travel. It's quite difficult to say, you know, after all that, it's like, so where have you been on your holidays? But tell me about the Maldives. You, uh, you spent six weeks in the Maldives. Yeah, so um, I read Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed, and there was a thing about are you living your most beautiful life and most beautiful existence and have you given yourself that? And I wasn't. And I, I was in the middle of the um, running and the weight loss process, but I hadn't, I hadn't broken up with my partner yet. And I kind of wrote about that and that it, it felt stagnant and we were never going to move forward with it. And, um, and then I left the next day and went to the Maldives for six weeks, which is crazy. Um, but they, had, they didn't have anyone on the island, so there was like a crazy deal that you could go if you were a journalist. So I just went. Um, and really, it was a really good experience in terms of just sitting with myself and that alone time. And, and really, like, I would see people at the sunset and I'd see people at dinner. But the rest of the day, I would just swim and read and um, play games with, like, people from all over the world. And we didn't always speak the same language and um, named the herons, named the turtles. Um, but, but again, like, going diving. And, like, that's something I hadn't done since I went around the world in 2007. And, and doing these physical activities because my body was saying yes, you know, like I had, I had done all this work on myself, but, um, much less about the weight loss, but about how I was 
living in my new body was my best friend was like, get in a bikini, get a brown belly. That is your mission. And I ended up borrowing a bikini from one of the girls that I had met and was really, really self-conscious because I hadn't worn one in 25 years. And then by the end, like, you're not paying any attention and it's fine. You know, and, and, and seeing that change and working out every day and, and really the all-you-can-eat and drink thing because being somewhere all-you-can-eat and not eating everything. Like, my whole life is all-you-can-eat. My whole life has been all-you-can-drink. But introducing myself to people as a non-drinker um, was, was revolutionary for me because things weren't open here. So I hadn't seen people and had to say, no, I don't drink. And so, like practicing that and it was like training wheels of who I'd be when I get back and a lot of times I think we think that we're going to be someone new when we travel like I went around the world in 2006-7 and then I was exactly me you know <laughs> like you are who you are but it's it's how that person reacts to these n- new situations and and the island was really really small and it was you get caught up in nonsense but it was amazing and the craziest was the January 6th insurrection because I woke up to 428 WhatsApps in America and I was like, what has happened? Um, but being completely in the middle of nowhere and and really sitting with myself and, and the decisions I had made and this was all pre-reclaim. So it wasn't that I had any intention or, but I think my intentions to myself were to be more present and live a more reasoned life that I needed to find what was going to light my fire again. It must have been an incredible contrast. I do know somebody who at the same time spent nine and a half weeks in the Maldives. But what was going on here, in the UK at least, is that everything was closed again. You know, I'm contrasting your life to my life at the time, and I was at home with two very small children on my own, just spending two hours a day in the bath, like absolutely miserable because there was no school no bars restaurants nothing to do and um there's only so many cold walks you can go to you can go through on the seafront with two very small children did you have a strange perspective on the the rest of the globe from your seat in the Maldives I think my perspective was really insular and I a couple friends were pissed with pictures I didn't I didn't post on social because I was aware um and I think it was really, really a time for me to just look inside um, and as selfish and as privileged as that is. Like, I, I totally understand that very few people can just up and do that. Um, but it was it was kind of a lights out, light switch moment for this life. And, and actually, there was karaoke, like Latvian karaoke and stuff. <laughs> um, and there was club nights every night that I didn't go to. Like, I would come and say hi after dinner and then I'd go home and read. And, and that developing and being able to say no and go to bed and not not hang or not try to do things to make other people happy and not be a people pleaser um, was all these elements of building this new confidence and persona of I'm going to do me and I'm going to set boundaries and I'm going to hold on to those boundaries. doesn't matter if some Russian guy is trying to give you a shot and is not taking no for an answer or asking if you're pregnant and that's why you're not drinking. does not matter. I don't need to justify why I don't drink, but I also can do this process and still and come out of it strong and that was the thing like me setting that routine and me being comfortable not speaking to everyone all the time or not doing that need was important was it a very different experience to when you went traveling the world in 2007 oh my god because that was all backpackers and talking to everyone kissing everyone and going up and down vietnam and all that so yeah hugely different how was that? Tell me about that trip. So I, I did a round-the-world trip, and I did Philly for Christmas, and then I did New Year's in Fiji, and then I did Fiji, Thailand, Vietnam, Australia, New Zealand, and then I came 
yeah, Singapore, and then I came back. What was your standout moment from that trip? Uh, probably Hoi An. Like, I really liked Hoi An and getting dresses made. And, and I was there, like, I was in Vietnam for a long time. And just, again, like, I'm not really good at cities when I travel, and I'm not really good at, like, crowds ever. Um, but so spending more time somewhere and bedding in is kind of where I'm happiest. And, like, I was a European sales manager uh, for 2002 until 2007 or eight or 2007, I guess. And like, I hated it with how much I was never home and how I was in all of these business hotels and people think you're a prostitute, which is humiliating. <laughs> and, and you're just never, you never have routine. You never eat the same thing twice. You're, you're drinking, you're doing all this stuff. And whereas once I quit that job, I got a dog, I got, I got roots and I got a long-term boyfriend. Um, and so my, my over traveling when I was doing business travel. And like when you're little, you think it's so glamorous. It's really not glamorous. Ugh. Um, but then shifting into, I went around the world in the, right before I got my indefinite leave to remain and then getting the dog and then the dog and having McNultz and having that stability has been amazing. Hoi An is my favorite place in the world. I think oh. it's my absolute favorite place. Nailed but for it. those of us, for, uh, for those of us who, those people who don't know it, describe Hoi An to me. So Hoi An, you have to go for three days to have your clothes made. So within those three days, it's like this magical little gem where you do a cooking class and you walk up and down the river. And, and basically everyone backpackery is either going north to south or south to north. And so you meet people in transit. Um, and uh, I just loved it. it the, the flavor of it, the people, it, it was just, it was an amazingly beautiful, quiet town. As, as far as I recall, it's a 16th century fishing village. I think it's 16th century fishing village, but it is the most beautiful little twinkly lighted. I, maybe tiny I just have town. a thing for fishing villages because my other, like my favorite place in the world is Kamoli. And Kamoli is a fishing village um, in Liguria, but it's right over Mount Portofino and it's tiny. And um, my ex boyfriend's family always holidayed there and had a place there. So over 10 years like I never thought there was a place that I was just going to want to go back and back mm. and back and the year before my 40th like there was a fireworks thing and I was like oh next year we can pretend they're for our wedding and he was like it's your 40th and I was like okay Johnny um, <laughs> and so I inv- I've never invited anyone to a wedding or a baby shower so I was like you know what you all have a year's notice I'm doing my birthday this weekend and we had there were 26 of us and so the trip uh, season two takes place there but we had um 26 of us come over for my birthday and it was amazing like it was one of the best weeks i've ever had the the trip uh, the steve cooden yeah. one oh my god that's just amazing yeah, and so where just, they eat on the beach oh, in, in italy is where i did my it 40th. really just showcases just the best of italy it's i almost like i grew up in spain so i know spain really well but i prefer the the spanish the italian one they did because they did spain at a funny time of year in terms of the weather they could have done spain better i think um, but yeah, that just showcases just the best of Italy, doesn't it? Again, twinkly lights, fishing villages, beautiful turquoise seas and the feeling of the sunshine and the food. And so three weeks ago after the TED Talk, the day after the TED Talk, I went back to Kamoli and I went by myself and I went without drinking for the first time. And it was amazing. And it, it and I remember all of it. And it was phenomenal. Um the only night that was too much for me is was the big fi- fireworks and bonfire night and stuff and all of the crowds of families again the crowd thing but all of the crowds of families i just didn't it made me feel lonely and so i went home and went to bed 
which was fine. Like, I don't have to be like, oh, I, I'm going to miss this or I have to stay for this or like setting your own agenda and just not work. No one thinks about anyone else. No one worries what I'm doing. You know, like listening to that voice saying, you're not enjoying this. Just go home is is really one of the things about tra- like I only took a tiny little backpack traveling really light and really nimbly and just doing your thing without excuses is really freeing and amazing it's really empowering isn't it mm. and I think that's something that also comes uh, with age as you as you grow up and and learn to you know just be yourself a little bit more and that's the thing now like um I definitely am like 150% extrovert um and I love people and I really, really struggled about how much I missed people. But like now I get hits of it, but I don't need just someone in the room. I don't need just someone to be there just to make me not be lonely, you know, like, and, and it's worse being lonely with someone in the room than being yeah, lonely when you're actually yeah. alone. Yeah. I, I relate to that because I'm a person that, you know, doesn't really like to be alone. I don't enjoy it. If I'm alone in the house, I will shut the door and get out and go and see people. But the pandemic forced us to 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 change that. You know, it was enforced for a lot of time for a, a great period of time during lockdowns. Um, so I think we've, we've all come out of that changed a little way. Some and I think our friendships have really shifted as well and who you rely on and who you don't. And the acquaintances have fallen away for a lot of us. Um, and and actually, the amount of change I did is quite confronting to people. So if I'm no longer the drunkest or the biggest or the loudest in the room, like, where does that leave me? Where does that leave them? The, the, the mirror of that is... And, and women, are, women are hard about weight loss of other women. Mm, people um, and people like being... Or like, envious. You're gonna, well, not just envious, but like thinking you've gone too far or thinking that it's gotten dangerous or like one girl was like, you're going to lose your boobs. What do my boobs have to do with you? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. And again, it's, but it's all of this and it's, and it's, and it's the stress of being on TV every day. Like this year has just been such a blow up your life type of year for me. Um, but also seven, seven stone is a, is not a healthy, you know, seven, seven stone heavier than you are right now is not a healthy thing. Oh no, no, no. And, <laughs> and, and running and hopefully time. people support you in that. Oh yeah. And when I did the Ted, one of my friends got a bus, we had a party beforehand and then got a party bus to the Ted. And all of those people have been in my life for 10 to 15 years. So I haven't, I haven't done the program. So I'm still very much with my old crew and they have absolutely held my hand through all of it and been crazy supportive. Uh, one of my friends sent me to Ibiza to turn everything off and be safe when I was having some issues with messages and fake accounts. And being a female on, in the public eye is brutal at times and, and feels more dangerous than you could imagine at times. So uh, trying to figure out what's real and what's fake and what's real threat and what's online threat and and how that works um has taken quite a bit of counseling this year um but hopefully i'm in a good place having watched you on twitter followed you on twitter for for a, a, quite a while now i saw when you went home to the states for the first time well I, I, i'm guessing obviously the first time since the pandemic but the first time in a long time and i was curious as to where your family are from because you have sisters that oh are, yeah <laughs> who are chinese who are chinese i oh, know yeah. they're totally chinese um so they were all adopted from china so yeah, they're uh, they're hundred percent Chinese, um, but they are not biologically related to each other. But my baby little sister is at Penn State, where I went to school. All three went to Penn State, but um, she's a sophomore at Penn State. And so when I was doing the TED rehearsals, like she was in her dorm room, and I was like rehearsing to her nonstop. But my three Chinese sisters, in terms of intersectionality and stuff, talking to them about what their experiences are with male violence and 
jokes about happy endings and being fetishized and not knowing if someone wants to sleep with you because you're a Chinese girl or if they're actually interested in you. And, and that layer of violence and racism that I've never experienced and will mm. never experience and broke me a bit. And hearing their lived experiences with that was really painful because they're my babies. I just want to like... And they probably wouldn't tell you, you know, a bit like we don't didn't really tell our male friends about how we walk home at night in the middle of the road with the keys in our hand because we don't think of imparting it. And it's not their experience. A bit, a little bit like you, even as close as you are to your sisters, you'll never know what it's like to be to be them, to be racially vulnerable in some situations. Also with the anti-Asian American crime exactly, and, and yeah. what that feels like. And with like one of my middle sisters from Wuhan. So hearing it called the Wuhan flu lands differently, you know, and, and understanding what they have grown up with within cells online, which we didn't. And so it, there's a whole raft of experience that, I don't know, but have learned quite a bit from them. So what's the story behind the adoption? You, they oh, had you first. Oh, so my, my mom and dad had me and my brother, who's three years older than me, and then my stepmother couldn't have babies, and they, ha they adopted Katie when I was 19. So Katie's the oldest of my three little sisters. And did they adopt them from China? Mm -hmm. And went over, and then we all went to China, I think, in 2003 or 2004. Um, yeah, so they are all from different parts of China. Yeah, it's 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 crazy, though, because they live in a really, really white part of Pennsylvania. Um, and so that had its own issues as well of teachers thinking they'd be amazing at math <laughs> and, and, like, implicit bias about them and them not being white in that community. That must be very difficult for them. Have you, do you feel, have they been inspired to, to travel? Um Maddie came over to Kamoli. Maddie and my dad came over to Kamoli for my 40th actual birthday. The, my friends came the weekend after, um, which was amazing. She was 16. Oh, my God. She's like my style icon. Um, and we joke about her coming over for study abroad. They all came over for a Christmas here. Um, our China trip was a bit of a disaster. I was going to ask about that. It was painful. And it Why? Was, so there's this whole homeland tourism thing that you bring them back to where they were from. But, like, it's it's thwarted and they're like here's the tree you were left next to because you were a girl um and then now people now the children that are left in the orphanages are mostly um left for not being able-bodied and rather than girls and but it's still this disposable awful yeah none of us my dad is a planner but we did like 12 cities in 24 days and it was just too much emotionally physically everything was just too much the 12 cities, were they because they were related to your sisters? So it was trying to do the history stuff and where they were adopted from. Um, and, and yeah, it was, it was... I loved spending time with my sisters. The rest of that trip could do one. You, you said about the tree that one of them was... That was that's a real thing, is it? The tree that one of them was found on. And then the hospital, they're like, yeah, that was the bench. Like, but you don't... Yeah, it, it, they think that it's healing in some way, but it's, for us, it was awful. Uh, including for them as well. Oh, oh yeah. for them it was traumatic. Like, have they got any known relatives? Uh, no. Anna, who's the middle sister, um, her foster uncle we saw and had dinner with. But it was the uncle. He was like the party official and they couldn't keep her but wanted to. And like it's, it's the politics around that and the worth of being a female. And so like there's just layers of, yeah, I won't be going back to China anytime soon. Mm, very interesting. Often people, when they're adopted from another country, 
their adopted parents, adoptive parents, would uh, try and, you know, sort of keep their culture going and instill, still, instill the culture, which I can kind of see So my why. dad, like, did families with children from China. They were actually in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is super white. Philly is very diverse. Um, I think they should have probably been in Philly, which I probably shouldn't make comments on their parenting. Um, but so they took they took lessons in Chinese for a while and like they had Chinese school on Sundays and stuff until the kids didn't want to do it again. Imagine as a kid, you would not want to do that. Even me, I grew up with my mum and dad and they're still together. But my dad's an Indian Fiji and actually funny you should mention Fiji. He's from Fiji, but Indian, 100 percent Indian blood. And if they'd have taken me to like, you know, Indian dance classes, I'd just be like, Right. Leave me alone. I want to just, it, it, I, God, there's so much to unpack from that, but I want to assimilate with my friends. You know, I don't want to stand out. I mean, obviously, later on, you, you sort of get to embrace the other culture a little bit as you grow up, but, but also, you don't want it forced on you. You can't, you're not dating Asian people if you're never seeing any, like if you're the only Asian kid in school and they were the only Asian kids in school. And, and like, obviously we, we're very aware that they're Chinese, but I don't know that there was enough knowledge or like enough work done about the racism there and enough um and the kids and I talk about it a lot and my dad tried but I don't think I think it's really hard when you're white parents and you're trying to figure it out but I I don't I think they should have probably lived in a city where they didn't stand out we've been all over the place and I love this conversation and that's what I like about uh, the podcast is we're here it's about life stories through travel and it's you and your life story and where you come from and your work and everything like that um, do you feel we've missed anything in terms of travel? Um, I, I think that Americans, especially when they first move here, do the checklist of like I, 30 countries by the time I'm 30 and this, that and the other thing. And in doing so, miss the flavor and miss like I really love finding fiction from wherever I'm going to go. And if I'm like planning a trip, reading that in advance. So you're feeling like, you know, a little bit more about the place, not just not just the surfacey what you're going to find in a lonely planet. I'm going to Madeira think in 10 days or something so I've got to find a book this week um and really sitting in coffee shops and just people watching rather than touching the Blarney Stone Mm -hmm. rubbing uh, Juliet's breast in wherever which most of us have never done by the way you know Uh, I went on I went on a senior year high school trip with my mom and 30 kids to Italy we definitely rubbed the breast um and and that kind of travel and that kind of eating in people's homes rather than just doing the route like uh, Kamoli is very, very close to Cinque Terre. But Cinque Terre is a nightmare. It's all kinds of people with walking sticks and Americans and Germans with walking sticks. And and the land is getting destroyed by the, the tourism. Mm. And, like, Kamoli doesn't really have any Americans or English-speaking people. And, like, that's where I want to land. I don't want to land where there's hordes of Americans doing the checklist. Um, and I think also when we're traveling somewhere, if we're breaking it, we need to stop traveling there. Um with my dog, we've done tons and tons of England. So we've done tons of Airbnbs where we do big walks and take McNaults. And that was really fun, um, exploring different parts of the country. This, um, we went to Silly Isles, which, oh my God. And then got stuck for a couple of days on Hell Bay Island. There are not, it's amazing. Like I could be stuck there for a lot longer. But taking places where McNulty's welcome and not leaving her behind. Like I wish that the Eurostar allowed dogs because I would take her to the mainland all the time. Um, and 
that's kind of like doing those walking trips and, and not it being the beaten path is kind of where my happy spot is in terms of travel. I should speak to Eurostar. I've got contacts there. See if they can just do one doggy train a day. I know. We No, we did a protest. Pets Pajamas did a protest about pets on the train and we only wanted one a week. On a week, even yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I would, but now with now with not being in the EU, it's it's a dead cause. And also, you've got bigger campaigns to worry about, <laughs> I guess, than getting dogs on the Eurostar. But things like that, travel is important to people, and it's and dogs are important to people. You know, we've seen that throughout the pandemic about how not being able to travel has been you know a, a real struggle for a lot of people. I've just done that. The, uh, the rail service for Europe has their 50th birthday, so it was a half-price ticket. So I've just done that, and I've got to figure out where I'm going to go. Because, again, I don't drive, and, and me going around Europe on a train just sounds romantic and amazing. And me and a backpack of books, and I'm done. And the dog? No, she won't be allowed. No, it'd be too difficult, won't Yeah, you? and she's an old, old lady. She wants her peace. She doesn't want me uh, bugging her and taking her to hot climates. Absolutely not. I do have one more question before I ask you my last question, um, which is always about music. Um, but I did want to, just going back to the, the weight loss, um, was it difficult as a, as a larger traveller before? I'm thinking like practicality. Well, literally, Noom is the app that I used, and they ask you your very big goal. Like, what is your ultimate goal? And mine was about getting on a plane without somebody next to me like making the face that they were next to the fat girl on the plane and and actually going back to America for that first time and and not feeling like I was taking up extra space and and the the fat shaming and the fat phobia is horrible you know and then you read books and the way they talk about fat people and the way they the way you're looked at and the way you're seen is is abhorrent um it's another thing to be judged for isn't it a bit like you know skin color and actually flying with kids which I do so. I'm definitely rolling my eyes then yeah exactly yeah. Um, and 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 I'm I know what I look like now and I know my size but like I still not really clear on navigating space like I'll walk around things not thinking I can fit through things and that's weird because it's like I was and I also don't want to hang out with or date anyone that wouldn't have been friends or dated me when I was bigger mm. you know like if if you're nasty to people I just don't want you in my life definitely Absolutely. Well, I'm going to ask you my last question now, um, which is always about music. And if I had to ask you to choose one song that reminds you of a moment and time and place of travel, what is that song and what were you doing? What does it make you think of? You're So Vain. <laughs> Love it. Um, and my my 40th in Kamoli and everybody on the terrace and my best friend giving me a card that said, you're so vain, you probably think this card is about you. <laughs> Which is basically my perfect card. Um, and was that week was one of the most joyous and it was it was right after my mom died. So everyone coming together was healing and beautiful and, and they were all there for me. Um, and I wasn't in a crumpled heap because they were there for me. Um, and my mom used to play Carly Simon all the time. So there's multi-layers of that one. And also, you don't strike me as someone who is vain. And the fact that your friends can buy you that card means you're not quite as vain as they might think you are. <laughs> I like a mirror. <laughs> don't we all? You know? And actually, I was going to end it there because it's a beautiful place to end it. But vanity you know, and weight loss like go hand in hand, especially I'm a bit older than you. And like now I want to be, you know, I am vain and I do watch my weight and exercise because of that. But a side effect of that is, is the health stuff. But talking about the plane seat, I've got this thing that when I get on the plane, 
if I can fit it around me. I, I think about who was sitting there before. You know, I really do. It's an I've awful, terrible. I think of like, oh, they've got the. I mean, they could have just loosened their belt. You know, but I love sitting in the plane seat and knowing I can get it on the smallest notch. Still, <laughs> yeah, I've never thought about that. It's a bad, vain, uh, obsessive thing. Yeah, I like. Philly and and the food consumption, like we put fries on salads, um, and and what that looks like, and the lack of my nutritional knowledge, and like figuring that stuff out, and figuring out how I can eat more healthy, and my body's reacted really well to it. So it's it's given me a lot more years that I can travel and and go and fight the power. I think in you know the states particularly, but you look around here, we we eat differently, you know, the, the, than we used to. You know, the portions like in America, it's a whole other ball game with loads of fried crap not everywhere i know um but uh but here you know every time you go into a coffee shop you're confronted by a, a load of cakes and pastries or flapjacks that are uh, packaged up as being healthy and people don't know that you know if you have those things it you know it all it all adds up doesn't it yeah and and for me the the idea of fueling that i can run and fueling that I can exercise and that I can get up in the morning and do these interviews and have a clear head. And, and that's a lot of the amount of fruit and veg I eat now. And like the amount of, and I'm still a meat eater, but like I'm much more conscious when I'm home and on maintenance. And then when I'm out, it's whatever, you know, like, but I'm not out seven nights a week anymore. I could chat to you for ages, but we have got to end it somewhere. Thank you so much. Jamie, for coming thanks on the Big so much. Podcast. I really appreciated me. that conversation and it was really insightful and I can't wait to see what you do next. We have a new fresh episode for you every other Thursday. Thank you so much for listening to the Big Travel Podcast. We'll be back very soon. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.